When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to today's episode of Rao Pal Real Vision. What is going on, everybody? Ash Bennington here for Real Vision. We are hosting a crypto gathering, Twitter spaces right now, crypto gathering, the macro setup. This is going to be an incredible conversation. We've got, as you can just see, just joining the call right now, Rao Pal, our CEO and co-founder, Bijan from the Real Vision community, the Real Vision community manager for Real Vision Collective. Mark Ritchie II is going to be joining us and Nico Bruga. Hey guys, welcome everybody. Looks like folks are just getting joined onto the call right now. Hey, Rao, can you hear me? Yeah, Ken, can you hear me? I'm, I'm on a mobile phone, so I'm not, I haven't got a headset on, so hopefully you can hear me still. Loud and clear, perfectly, actually. Great. Good to be here. Excited. Well, it's great to be hosting. Raul, I know we've got some more people joining the call, but while folks are getting on board, why don't you set us up, talk a little about, about what's going on in your mind. I just watched an incredible piece that you did on Real Vision earlier today called Is It Game On? It's a provocative setup. Give us the context. Yeah, so look, we're all grappling in the crypto space right now is where are we? You know, is this the time that we should be really allocating to this? Are we getting ready for the next bull run? Now, the crypto space overall is not certain about this. There's a lot of people think we've got another down leg to come. Others think we've got this kind of 2019 style correction. So what I decided to do uh, along with Nico was to try and put together an incredible week of content, the crypto gathering, as we call it, to get all of the best thinkers together, put my ideas first and say, look, this is what I think and this is why, from my typical macro crypto viewpoint, and then bring on the very best technical analysts, hedge fund managers, Web3 people, just to bring as many people on as possible to get their views so we can all learn from all the different divergent opinions to figure out, okay, is it game on? And, you know, I think you know already that I think it is, and it has been for a while. I've been positive on the space since, you know, certainly ETH since June and the rest of the space since November. Luckily, time those pretty well. Um, but most of my work suggests putting together things like the Everything Code, along with, you know, the general liquidity analysis plus price action um, and business cycle analysis suggests to me that the markets continue to rise from here. So I'm pretty bullish, but I'm really interested to see how others think about this this week. So today on the Real Vision platform, and it's free for anybody who wants to go and have a look, um, I think it's realvision.com forward slash gathering. You can just go there and my video's out. It's a, it's, um, I don't know how long it is. It's maybe 35, 40, 45 minutes. 45 yeah, minutes, of yeah. My in-depth analysis of everything that's in my head, how I'm looking at Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, Coinbase, and a whole bunch of other stuff as well uh, with kind of, yeah, a lot of analysis tying it all together. So hopefully it's going to help people frame up what they need to know right now. 
Well, you know, Ralph, I just watched it earlier this morning. And what's interesting to me is the context that you bring to this is very much a macro context uh, drawn from this broader concept about liquidity, currency debasement, the Fed balance sheet, G5 central balance sheets. Talk a little bit about that frame up that you bring to the table. Yes. Yeah, so how I've looked about this and people have heard me talk about this a lot is my view is the biggest driver of all asset prices right now is global debasement of money driven by the printing of of, of money by all the world's major central banks. Um, Julian Bittle, who works for me at Global Macro Investor, put together an index of that. It's quite a complicated index, but generally it's our GMI Global Liquidity Index. And that has, let's say, a 97% correlation with the NASDAQ and about 87.5% correlation with Bitcoin. The reason crypto is less correlated is because it has these huge up cycles that tends to diverge from liquidity because of the network adoption. But that liquidity cycle is driven by debasement, which I think is driven by the payment of interest by all the world's central banks. They're all doing it. And I've figured out that all of the QE almost exactly equals the interest payments of the previous cycle. So most government debt is being rolled at between three and five years. It all got reset in what I refer to as the Great Reset, which was 2008, something I've only recently come across realizing that we're all waiting for a Great Reset, but it actually happened. Basically, it was a debt jubilee on interest payments. If you set all interest rates down to zero, then nobody has interest payments to make. Now, obviously, rates go up and down in the, in the business cycle, but generally, we've kept them as low as possible. When we reset rates uh, in 2008, 2009 to zero, everybody issued their bonds on this three to five year time horizon. They roll them every three to five years. So about three and a half, four years is every time we end up with a business cycle, which is exactly the same timing as the Bitcoin halving cycle. And every time you roll those debts, you pay the interest on the previous ones and just keep rolling the debts forwards. So the debt burden keeps growing and the balance sheet keeps growing. That is the, the paying of interest um, by putting it onto the central bank balance sheet is essentially like taking a credit card to pay off a credit card. So it keeps compounding. So that's what's going on. That drives assets because the denominator, the value of fiat currency keeps falling. Um, and so once you understand that, and you understand it's linked to the business cycle and it's forecastable, you can forecast when you think this is going to happen. Now, this is still a thesis, a hypothesis. It's, it's worked very well in the past. We want to see if it works forward. But I think with the Everything Code, I can project forwards when these things happen. And we're getting into the zone now where the printing presses should start to come back. Now, we've seen some of this already. Obviously, Japan used it for yield curve control. And as JGB yields edge up towards 50 basis points again, we may see it again. China has been ongoing slowly, um, slowly increasing their balance sheet. They've not done any large bursts, but over time they have. The UK did for their pension crisis, had a quick burst. The US did for its banking crisis. I don't think the US banking crisis is done either. Uh, the European balance sheet is still shrinking. Um, but over time, I think as the recession bites, the liquidity comes back into the market. And all my forward-looking indicators suggest that. So this is a really, really big, important framework. And what it really does is drive crypto. And crypto is driven... Crypto is the fastest horse, so it drives the NASDAQ, it drives the S&P, it drives most assets, even gold. But the fastest two horses are the NASDAQ and then crypto, and crypto is infinitely faster as a horse to back than the NASDAQ in this case. Um, and so crypto itself is driven by two factors. One is the debasement, the other is the adoption of technology. 
So those two things combined make it so fast. So that's why I'm very focused on crypto because it's a tremendous opportunity. We had a huge bear market. After the bear markets, you tend to get really good returns. So that's really my, my focus here. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Rao, I was saying one of the things that's interesting to me uh, about this particular macro thesis, you just set it up there uh, with the internal dynamics of the what's happening in uh, currency debasement on the one hand, exponential technology adoption on the other. But what's interesting to me, Rao, about this macro thesis, unlike most macro thesis, you have the internal dynamics within the crypto space, particularly as an asset class. So you talk about Bitcoin versus Ether versus altcoins. Talk a little bit about that setup and how you see it. Yeah, that's another interesting thing I found with my work is that traditional financial markets, you have a risk curve. And for example, people invest in government bonds and then they move out to corporate credit and then move out to junk bonds and they move out to emerging market junk bonds or private sector loans. That is generally driven by the business cycle when people decide to take more risk. So I thought if human behavior is similar across how they take risk, then it probably works for crypto. So I started doing the work on the ETH Bitcoin cross as a proxy for, you know, risk taking. And what I found is it actually mirrors the business cycle and the liquidity cycle. So as liquidity comes in and the business cycle starts recovering, you tend to find that ETH outperforms. So that was a big breakthrough. I found that the ISM, for example, leads a lot of this. Um, and so that gives you an idea of when you should be in certain phases of market regime. And we're headed into the phase, not yet, but we're very close, where things like ETH start outperforming. So we get what's known as alt season. And so then I back that up in a number of different ways by looking at different charts as well and looking at ways and even historical patterns um, that's all within this piece on Real Vision um, to back up the idea that that phase is soon to come. And that becomes very interesting. And that's where I start linking in things like Solana, because as you go further out the risk, risk curve, you should find that um, the smaller assets uh, with good network adoption start to really move. So that becomes my thesis on, OK, how can you allocate amongst certain levels of risk within the crypto markets themselves? And I don't think many people have looked at this yet, this style of analysis, but it seems to work well. Yeah. Listen, by the way, if you're listening to this Twitter spaces, take a look over on Real Vision's Twitter feed. You're going to see some of those charts coming out. It looks like the first one just got pushed out on Real Vision's Twitter feed. So you can follow along with us visually, which I think is very helpful uh, when you see these charts. I think it makes a lot more sense to hear this thesis unpacked. The other thing that I wanted to touch on here uh, is not just stable coins, but also your thesis about Coinbase as a proxy more generally for the crypto space. How's that working? Explain that framework. So generally speaking, if we're going to get towards a, well, there's a number of reasons why Coinbase is interesting. One is obviously every single ETF, I think, has listed them um, as part of their ETF. So if you think they get approved, then then obviously um, 
Coinbase gets a lot of business. And, you know, we've had them on Real Vision. I think they're building a really world-class business. Um, they've got some world-class people there. But um, in addition, generally, if you don't know how to trade the space and you know that there's a big movement of capital to come into the space over time, well, Coinbase is like the toll keeper because, you know, that is the, the main institutional vehicle in the United States. Yes, there's Fidelity and others, but many of them also integrate with Coinbase. So Coinbase itself does well. Now, interestingly, I started overlaying Coinbase, which, you know, got crashed last year against things like the NASDAQ uh, in 2002, 2003. It's following that exact repeat pattern post a crash low as liquidity comes in out of a out of a recessionary period. It also matches the chart of Amazon out of the same period as well, when Amazon fell 97%, much like Coinbase has done. So there's a lot of similarities um, from these kind of post-crashes. What's interesting is Coinbase, KR1 in the UK, which is another small crypto um, listed vehicle, plus ARK and Solana are all the same chart. So people talk about esoteric risks in you know, ARK or Coinbase. It's not That's not how the market priced it at all. They just priced it according to liquidity. So as liquidity comes in, these are long duration assets and they tend to do extremely well. So they all look very similar, um, whether it's Solana, whether it's Coinbase, whether it's KR1, um, or whether it's even ARK. Uh, and it depends how comfortable you are with different risks. Um, and, you know, because, you know, they, they are individual companies over after, you know, overall. So you choose which part of the risk curve you want to invest in. But they all look very interesting. They're all driven by the same macro cycle. Hey, Ralph, talking about the same macro cycle, let me just walk through this as we talk about crypto spring and what's happening in equity markets. Let me just read this out to folks here. Uh, I know you've got these numbers in front of you, too, but just directly from the Bloomberg terminal, S&P 500 year to date up about 14, uh, call it almost 15 percent right now. NASDAQ composite up 30 percent, more than 30 percent. NASDAQ 100 up over 37 percent. Ethereum up 56 percent year to date. Bitcoin, Bitcoin up nearly 84% year to date. And Solana up 111. <laughs> Perfect sequence, Ralph. Exactly. I mean, I mean, this was my thesis from last year that this is how it would play out. Now, who knows how it continues to play out, but it's playing out exactly as I thought it would be. Um, and the asset relative performances are very similar to what happened in 2008. 18, when the Fed got close to the pivot, um, we saw similar outperformances of crypto. That time, Bitcoin took off like a like a rampant stallion and, and then had to spend a lot of the year correcting them. It, it went up 300% in a short period of time. This one looks more similar to the kind of 2015-16 period. But still, it still seems to be following exactly the same kind of cycle because I think it's driven by the same macro cycle, which is this debt refi cycle. Hey, Raul, as we talk about the risk curve, let's talk about the maximum extreme on the risk curve. What's happening in Web3 and NFTs? Talk a little bit about this. You've been very passionate about this space. Yeah. <clears throat> so you need to think of NFTs in their current state as assets within the Ethereum economy. Now, the Ethereum economy went through a, a nasty recession last year and you know, on-chain activity shrunk over time. And, you know, that's a typical recessionary activity. If you think of Ethereum as a digital network state, it's undergone a recession. So what happens is 
I talk about this in Global Macro Investor a lot, and we've shared it in um, Real Vision Pro Macro, is um, there's something called the business cycle dominoes, which shows that some things lead, some things lag. Now, asset prices, like house prices, tend to lag the economic cycle. So what happens is, as the economy starts shrinking, people stop buying, let's say, the best comparable is Rolex watches and Patek Philippe watches. The economy starts shrinking, people have less money, inflation has, take, has eaten into everybody's pocketbooks, so they stop buying secondhand Rolexes. And the price of secondhand Rolexes fall, liquidity comes back into the market, people start making a bit of money again, they feel safer in their jobs, they end up bidding, bidding up for trophy assets again to make themselves feel good. That's a very human trait. Same happens with NFTs. So people have been liquidating NFTs to get some cash because it's been an ETH bear market. Um, and that cycle, and I'll come on to blur farming in a minute, but that has created uh, downward pressure on, on NFTs. Now, what follows from cheap prices is as the ETH economy recovers, people start making money again. We're not really in that phase yet, but soon people will start making money again. And once you start making money, you tend to start rewarding yourself with assets. You know, if you make money in the in the meat space, in the in the physical world, you end up you, know, you buy yourself a car, or if you've been really lucky, you can, you know, upgrade your house, or you might buy yourself a watch, whatever. The exact same mechanism works in the crypto markets. So as people will make money, they'll go back and buy punks or art or whatever they choose they think gives status and makes them feel good and rewards themselves for success so i'm getting very interested in ft space right now because it's totally on its ass it's kind of the lagged effect of what happened to eth last year so i get very interested at moments like this when everybody's kind of panicking everybody's puking out assets what i also like is when there's there's a technical reason behind stuff like in in June in Ethereum, it was the three arrows capital uh, and all of that. And then in November, it was FTX. Here we've got Blur with its incentive mechanism. So Blur is, a, is an exchange for NFTs like OpenSea, except that they've got this kind of high frequency market making components. And these people called farmers who provide pricing liquidity are given token, future tokens as, as incentivization. So what's been happening is they have been kind of churning through NFTs, buying and selling and buying and selling to try and earn future rewards. Now, what happened is, and I'm going I'm to partially blame friends of mine, um, um, Ovi and Mando for this. They dumped a whole bunch of, of um, um, bored apes, I think, on the market. Now, there's no natural buyers of NFTs right now in any bulk because of the ETH economy recession. So large sales like that hit the market. These market makers buy them. They then flip them for a small loss to another set of market makers who buy them, flip them from the small loss, and you create this downward spiral. These guys are hoping they get offset um, the lot these small losses by the value of the token. So we've had this weird dynamic price. Now, what's getting interesting to me is the blur token keeps falling. My guess is they're not going to get compensated for the risk that they took, and they're going to take a huge loss from doing this. So the perverse incentives by blur, which is they thought a good idea to get activity on their on their um, exchange, may end up being the death of their, their exchange. Now, maybe it's not that dramatic. But the point being, I think a lot of this activity is going to die 
because people are not going to be keen on getting paid in a token that's plummeting in price that could be worth a lot less than they paid. So we're getting to the bottom of this cycle in NFTs. And if I'm right that the ETH economy is going to recover and the crypto economy more broadly, then people are going to be buying trophy assets again. So the game in town is to find what trophy assets to own that people are going to want later. Now, NFTs are even more difficult than the more speculative end of crypto because, you know, who knows what's worth zero and who knows what's worth a lot. But there are some things like bored apes, punks. I mean, apes are probably riskier than punks because it's more affiliated with what Yuga can do as a project. But I still like that and I still think there's a good opportunity there. And I think they're still OG NFTs in the PFP space. Then we've seen, you know, punks are one of the things that people use the status symbols. Obviously, I own both a punk and a, um, and a bored ape. But really what's been interesting over this, I like to see divergences. And the divergences came from the generative art market. Um, that Those have held prices. So art blocks, stuff like that, that's all held prices. Uh, we've seen photographic art uh, bucking the trend as well, uh, particularly the generative photographic art like uh, Rupa Rainstow. That's been really interesting, uh, life in West America. But there's a lot of this great art that's been trading at high prices or stable prices. So there's the divergence. Fine art held its price. Um, the other stuff fell. And now the question is, is what do you own out of all of this stuff? It is difficult because most of the stuff you really want to own is bloody expensive. You know, how do, how do the smaller PFP projects from last time around, like crypto dick butts or let's say MFers or, you know, any of this stuff, how does, how does that last into the next cycle? Wreck guys. I don't know. Uh, could they create the, have, be, have their badge of honor for being from the last cycle? Maybe, maybe not. So it's a very difficult, very speculative space. I'm certainly far from an expert. So I only have a small allocation of my ETH into NFTs, but I am very focused. Hey, everyone. We're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, Rao, it's the moment that you've been waiting for. It's the reason why we do these Twitter spaces. Let's bring folks up for some questions. I'm sure we've got a lot of questions going on right now. Uh, it looks like the first person who joined us was Goldmember. Uh, Goldmember, please go ahead with your question for Rao. Hey, GM, everyone. How you doing, Rao? Ash, thanks for, for hosting a great space. Great questions being asked. Uh, one thing I just want to mention in particular is uh, – is just the way uh, Rao has mentioned about looking at at ETH NFTs as a store of value of ETH, and I and I think that alone has just caused me to to just re envision how I look at this this market in general. Uh, one thing I want to talk about is is this uh, the the explosion of generative art, so to speak, and and why we're seeing it. Uh, have such much more exposure in the market. One thing that kind of opened my eyes to how how big this was becoming was when Ovi actually posted his uh, his portfolio of generative NFT uh, art uh, profile pictures or just art um, as well. 
And and I wanted to ask you, Rao, why do you think we're seeing this this change? Is it because the generative art or art NFTs are not really necessarily tied to a utility and are just art and based on, I guess, the popularity or reputation of the artist? Or just, you know, what's what are your thoughts on that? Art's a really complicated game. But yes, firstly, they're one of ones. So that makes a difference. Secondly, there's no utility, there's no game, there's no nothing. It's you buy art because you like it. But then the meta narrative is obviously you want to be hanging out with the cool kids and the cool kids are buying generative art. So if you see 6529's museum and all of that buying this stuff, you want to own that. It's the same that happens with the traditional art market. You know, you may not like a Damien Hirst, but after a while you want to own one because everybody's got one. And it's the same with Jeff Koons. I mean, does anybody actually want a balloon-shaped sculpture? But no, you're going to pay millions of dollars for it because that other hedge fund billionaire bought one too. So humans have, you know, they really, they like the status. They want to copy each other. The generative art movement is a new and important um, art movement in the space, um, in, in all of art. So, you know, Sotheby's and Christie's have all been involved in it. So that's got the seal of approval. So it's starting to get, real um, collectors the collectors are getting well known and that's feeding on itself and because they're one of ones they're important pieces of art you know art for centuries has been a great store of value if you can find the right art so backing the art that already has momentum and has recognition tends to be a good strategy you know that's why warhols have done so well over time or jackson pollock or whatever it may be so I think that's what people are looking at is like, you know, I do have some money. I do want to get involved in something that gives me status and it's art that I like and it's an important art movement. You know, that's a kind of magic nexus. We're seeing it with whether it's generative or glitch art with X copy. You know, he's certainly one of the leading artists in the space and he's kind of a basquiat of, of the NFT digital art space. I mean, there's some incredible stuff going on here right now. Um, you know, I'm not the deepest into the art space overall, but I can see what's going on and there's some magic happening. Really interesting question, Gold Member, and great answer. Uh, Rao, let's go to Penny next, uh, who is, of course, a member of the RV Collective. Penny. Oh, I think Penny may have just dropped off. Probably some technical difficulties there. Uh, hello, oh, can I just jump on stage very quickly? Hello, Elaine Lee. GM, GM is the queen of chaos stepping in. I just thought um, I'd slip in there and say, Goldmember is not only the first in the space, Ash. Goldmember is our Real Vision community manager. So a little bit of hearts and loves here. Going to put the vibes back in. Penny, handing the stage over to you, my darling community member. Penny is back. Hey, I think you? you're still muted, Penny. Welcome. Great to have you here. Thank you. Now, I just wanted to go back to the blur issue. Do you think it's actually feasible for them ever to do the airdrop for season two? Or are they just going to keep kicking it on and kicking it on? Because as it stands at the minute, I was reading something the other day. For people like Matty Big Brother and Franklin to break even, they need to have $5 per farming point to break even. It just doesn't seem sustainable. Yeah, I'm not really into the true weeds of it yet, but I think you're right, Penny. You and I have been swapping Twitter notes about this as well. It's like, this feels like it's a total shit show. You know, I think that, that would be the official terminology. 
that they thought that it was going to be worth more than it was. And at these kind of prices, I think people have lost a, a lot of money. Now, there was talk of some people moving out of the space already. Um, but let's see. And then let's see how Blur survives after that uh, versus OpenSea. You know, it's not a very kind of retail used platform yet. Um, you know, people still tend to use OpenSea more, but this is where liquidity is found. So I don't know, but my, my hunch is your hunch, Penny. There's something that feels like this thing is broken and their token incentive system, which sounded like a good idea to start with, has ended up being the kind of cross, the, the albatross around their necks. Yeah, because I hey, can, can I ask you to explain that question uh, for the noobs here? I don't use Blur myself, uh, so I'm curious to hear a little bit of the context for the question you just asked, if you could explain it a little more broadly. So basically, when Blur launched and it was season one, it was nice and straightforward. For every NFT you listed, um, you got an undisclosed amount of points. You didn't know what you were getting. You didn't know how many boxes you were going to get. You didn't know what was going to be in them whether there were going to be, I think it was rare, legendary, and mythic in common. Um, so it was it was kind of like a game. The game find it slightly. If you logged into Blur every day, looked after your NFTs, relisted them, tinkered with the price, you were going to get more boxes. They ended season one after a couple of delays. It was still late. Um, everyone got loads of boxes. Everyone got loads of tokens. Everyone was really happy. We all dumped our tokens when we got them. And then it was game on for season two. Season two was um, bidding points. So they bought in where you could bid on NFTs. Um, and the more you bid, the more points you earned. And then you got extra points if um, your bids got accepted or you bought from bids. And then what happened was all the so-called whales came in and started professionally bidding on NFTs to gain points. And then to gain more points from their bids, they started lowering the floor price on the NFTs to gain more points on the off chance that they're going to get enough tokens at the end of season two to recoup their losses plus make a little bit extra. And then it put everyone that was a so-called like normal person out of blur because you were just being undercut constantly. And season two, I think it's on its third or fourth delay at the moment. So they keep saying, oh, it'll be this date or it'll be this many weeks. It gets cancelled. But when they cancel it, they announce a new utility to try and pacify people that something else is coming along. And then it became even more of a shit show when they started doing the um, loans on the NFTs and they started releasing the loans by collection. So you almost guaranteed, as soon as they announced um, an NFT collection that you could um, borrow against, the floor price tanked on it. So it just made it even worse. Very interesting, helpful background, helpful context. Uh, I want to move on to our, thanks, Penny. That was great. I uh, really appreciate that. I want to move on to our next question. Uh, Nanaimo Trader, one of our regular listeners here at Real Vision Twitter Spaces. Nanaimo, go ahead, please, with your question for Raul. Yeah, thanks, Ash. And hello, everybody. Hello, Raul, Elaine. Um, so, Raul, just looking at this from the macro standpoint, I know a lot of people are looking forward to the Bitcoin halving scheduled for next year. But with 92.5% of the supply 
that's out there right now. How, like, what kind of effect do you think that'll have? I mean, we already have 92.5% of Bitcoin that'll be mined. Does it really matter that much in the grand scheme of things, you know, that another, you know, little bit is left to be mined? Curious what your thoughts are on that from the macro standpoint. Yes, I think the halving cycle is actually coincidental to the macro cycle. I think the debt refi cycle that occurred from 2009 onwards happened to coincide with the birth of Bitcoin and the halving cycles matches with the kind of four-year debt refi cycle. So I think the biggest driver is that. Obviously, reducing some supply in a market that is a bull market driven by macro liquidity um, helps matter somewhat. But I, 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 you can use the halving cycle because it works because it's the same cycle. But I'm not sure it's actually driven by the supply dynamics of Bitcoin. You know, I think demand is always more important than supply and demand is driven by liquidity and the macro cycle itself. Interesting. All right, folks, let's get lots of other people up here. It looks like we have some questions uh, coming uh, from a lot of different listeners here. We'd love to get some of you guys up here. Uh, let me see if we can just start getting folks up here on the stage. Uh, Raul, as we're waiting for that, uh, give us a little bit more context on what you see happening next. People who've listened to your thesis, what should they be looking for? What should they be monitoring uh, in terms of what's on their dashboard? Yeah, so I think the big thing to monitor on the dashboard, if there's going to be a sudden surprise of liquidity in the United States, it's going to come out of the regional banking sector. And again, I cover this in the piece on, on Real Vision. So those of you who've just joined into the call, it's free. It's realvision.com forward slash gatherings, part of our one week crypto gathering where we all analyze whether we think the bull market is back and whether it's game on for crypto. And my piece kicks it all off. Um, so I think the regional banks ETF, KRE, is a good place to look. If it starts breaking back down and making new lows, then that's telling us that the inverted yield curve and the high interest rates are yet again causing problems within the banking system. I don't think those problems have gone away. And behind it is the massive issue of... Um, of commercial real estate. Um, commercial real estate across the United States is empty, uh, particularly the offices. And that stuff is all going to end up defaulting uh, within these regional banks. And I think that ends up on the central bank balance sheet eventually. So I think that's one key indicator to look at. Um, I'm also expecting um, the economy to bottom in the next couple of months. Um, my forward-looking indicators suggest that it bottoms, but usually what we'll see is really important to understand is that unemployment, core inflation, these things lag massively, as do rents, and those things will not bottom until 2024, 2025. So we've got a long cycle still to come in the business cycle, but the important part is the forward-looking liquidity starts, starts to rise um, and the banking system is probably the thing that's going to exacerbate it. The other thing to keep uh, an eye on, for those of you who know what they are, is JGBs, Japanese government bonds. Um, they have yield curve control at 50 basis points, which means they buy all bonds and print money to do so. Um, they started spiking up over the last few days and are at 46 basis points. So you're very close to that level where the Japanese start printing again. And that would be more debasement of currency of that time is the yen. The yen has been weakening. So there's some big picture macro stuff going on. Usually summer months are pretty quiet. So I expect fireworks 
more to happen maybe in end of August, September period when things tend to pick up. Uh, one more thing to keep on the radar screen is the US dollar. The US dollar is weakening. I expect it to continue to weaken. Uh, that gives asset prices a lift as well and is a positive for the crypto space. Listen, two quick points that I want to make about this around commercial real estate, uh, because it really piqued my interest when you said it. The first shameless plug for Real Vision macro members, I did a conversation uh, with Stan von Nuremberg, a professor at Columbia University that I'm very proud of. Raul, you know about this because in the middle of the interview, I was basically texting you going, holy shit, Raul, you got to check this out live. It's an amazing conversation. Uh, second, you said something there that I thought was really interesting, again, that made my ears perk up, which is that you said, not only do you see risk in the commercial real estate market, but this is really the key point from a macro perspective, that that's something that you see ultimately winding up on central bank balance sheets. Yeah, I mean, we've seen this in Europe. If your banking sector becomes insolvent because of some bad loans and they're structural, they're not cyclical, then if you want your banking sector to function without it contaminating even the large banks, and I would argue that Bank of America potentially could be contaminated within this, then they're going to have to do something about it. Now, we don't know the full size, but the estimates are somewhere between $600 billion and $2 trillion worth of issues. Now, the reality is, is most offices around the United States are maybe at 50% occupancy. The issue is, is when they say, sorry, occupant, that's occupancy, meaning they've got tenants. But many people, like Real Vision itself, we're stuck in offices. We don't have any staff going there most of the time, but we can't get out of the lease. So as soon as the leases come up, everyone just, you know, just gives, gives back the lease. And the problem is, is the people who own the real estate have loans against them. And so they, they can't pay their loans. They default. They default on the banks. The banks that have done all the lending in this are the um, regional banks. So the regional banks already have liquidity constraints anyway because their portfolios blew up uh, from bonds and they've had deposit flights and they're going to be stuck with these massive non-performing loans. The only way to deal with that, is, as the Europeans did, is basically take it as collateral and lend money against it. So that's what I think comes out of all of this. I don't see any other way around this. Now, the commercial real estate issue won't be this year's issue. It's probably a 2024, 2025, 2026 issue, but it's going to be ongoing for a long time, much like we saw with the savings and loan crisis back in the late 80s, early 90s. Interesting. Okay, we've got some new folks up here on stage uh, who I know are eager to ask questions. Uh, I'm hoping I'm not going to butcher this name. Batser, if you can hear me, please uh, go ahead with your question for Rao. I can confirm that it's been butchered. No problem. Hey, everyone. Hey, Rao. Um, <laughs> Say it correctly since I goofed it up. So, yeah, so uh, I just I go by Batsy. Yeah, for sure. Batsy. Yeah, but it's uh, Batsy Rai. But it's fine. So, uh, Matthew Rye, welcome. No, Glad to have you. Thank you. So, uh, of course, question for Rao, questions for Rao's. Uh, firstly, on the macro side, the total crypto market cap usually goes up by a 3x. So, I think we reached like 3 billion uh, or more at the last top. The next, to the next total market cap for the, for, the, for the industry is expected to be 10 trillion in the next cycle. No crystal ball, no financial advice. How likely do you think that is? I think it's pretty likely. Okay. I think, you know, if I look at the long-term adoption curve, you can use the log um, chart of, of the total market cap of crypto. 
seems to follow the same mechanism as the Bitcoin one does. So I would say that seems a reasonable projection. I think that's been Dan Tapiero's projection as well for a while. Uh, I think the whole space gets to 10 trillion uh, in, into, into this cycle. It makes total sense to me. Excellent. And uh, just a follow up question. Um, others have been speculating that this is going to be the last bull market with these level of, you know, with those crazy X's of returns because it's so illiquid. So in terms of upside volatility, do you think this is likely the last bull market with this level of upside volatility that volatility you've had in previous cycles because of the lack of liquidity? Do you think that's the case or do you think we're still going to have other bull markets with the levels of upside volatility that we've seen before? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't know. I think we've observed the lowering of the cycle returns Although early stage, more speculative tokens have done very well, particularly if they're strong ecosystems. So there is possibility that that goes on. But how many more layer ones can you have in this world? How many more layer twos do you need? So I think it becomes much more like the, the tech cycle where you get a few breakthrough things. But overall, the cycle, it continues to grow over time, but the returns come less until there's a breakthrough in something. And we don't know what that is. You know, we've got a lot of stuff coming. We've got everything from... Um, the financial markets going to be using moving to blockchain. That's more and more clear that that's going to happen at some point. Whether it's the settlement of equities, bond markets, all sorts of other stuff, even um, letters of credit. We're seeing the central bank digital currencies. What blockchains that they come onto? We're seeing more innovative uses of NFTs to come, digital identification, ticketing, all of that kind of stuff to come. So there's plenty of growth trajectory. Maybe speculative activity as more institutions on board in this space, finally. I think this cycle will see a lot more institutions, um, and that will dampen liquidity over time anyway. Um, but, yeah, it's a good question. I don't really know. We'll just have to see how it works. Rao, we've got a question, and it's an interesting one from Nico Bruga. Uh, Nico, go ahead with your question. Please. Yeah, Rao, um, as you were talking about commercial real estate and the on and the upcoming crisis that we're going to face with that, one thing I was curious about is, do you think the upcoming U.S. elections might throw a huge monkey wrench into it? Um, or do you think that no matter what, we're just going to move it on to the central bank balance sheet, regardless of politics? Nobody wants to see all the banking system go under. So I think regardless of politics, they're going to have to do something about it because the regional banks play a role uh, in the United States. Yes, there's too many regional banks, and I'm sure we'll see massive consolidation like we saw in Europe with their smaller banks. Um, and that takes a long time. Um, and a lot will go out of business and others will just need to be rescued as zombie banks. But regional banks play a role because, you know, they are more on the ground. They can speak to the local businesses and help them in their things. So I think either side of the political fence doesn't want the banking system to implode. And obviously, the Federal Reserve's job is not to allow that to happen. So I don't think the election's a big deal here. And I don't think you can force people to go back to work because, Nico, you're a classic example. You don't go into the Real Vision office, but I'm paying for your seat. <laughs> <laughs> or we all are. Yeah. I'm more about My seat too, Ralph. Yeah, exactly. And I, I'm in actually in the in the Real Vision office in Cayman right now. And I come in once every three weeks, two yeah. weeks. And nobody does. Ralph, so, so basically what you're saying about the commercial real estate crisis is that each political party will complain about it for a different reason, but you'll get the same outcome. You don't get a choice, Ash. In the end, you yeah. know, voters, their pocketbooks, their banks, 
these things matter and no politician will stand against that. They won't want to see their population have their savings destroyed because that votes them out and rightly so. All right, I've got a question for you, Ralph. Um, every time we do one of these spaces, you're always very eloquent in talking about how Real Vision is more than just your view of the world. You've given your view, you've articulated it here today. Here during this crypto gathering, we've got a lot of people coming on the platform to give a lot of different angles on this space. Who are you most looking forward to hearing for, from? Or what are you most interested in hearing about over the next weeks from the guests that you and Nico have assembled? So for me, A, I always love to hear what the hedge fund managers say, because they're people in the trenches with the money on the line. So Chris Sullivan, Jeff Dorman and others are coming to speak to us. So I'm always interested in that because everybody else's opinion, those guys have client money on the line and that's always important i'm really interested in the web3 conversation because i think there's a lot going on in that space as we alluded to earlier so getting some experts to chew through how the nft market feels what's going on where the opportunities lie where the risks lie i think that's going to be fascinating i think i'm wrapping up the week speaking to ovi um and he's great because not only is he an artist he's also a trader and a financial markets trader as well, um, and has played this space really well, and he's just an incredibly smart, nice guy. So just to pick his brains at the end of all of this to try and put together some sort of thematics and see where we think this is all going, I think will be really, really good. Interesting. All right, let's open the floor back up. Jamie, uh, Jamie Miner, you've been waiting for a while. Jump in uh, with your question for Ralph, please. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so um, I've been listening to the interviews about the everything code and I'm trying to wrap my pea brain around it and uh, I think what I've gotten so far is as assets go up and to outpace inflation to get to reach your profit you're, you're, you're suggesting that investing in assets that have network effects which is obviously crypto and some technology company is the best path to to do that um and then then the other side of it is oops sorry go ahead okay and then the other side of it is that as the you're, bank you're, dro you're dropping you're dropping in and out jamie oh um I think we may have lost Jamie Rowell. Uh, do you want to maybe try and answer his question just from Yeah, so, so what I did is when I started thinking through this idea of debasement, which is still contentious to so many people, it became quite observable to me once I started dividing. Just as a simple example, I started dividing the um, asset prices by the Fed balance sheet as a proxy. And what I found is that an asset is future deferred consumption. We buy an asset, so in later we can use that money, and we want the money to either appreciate or hold its value in the future, um, and that's why we buy assets. So when I looked at all of these assets, things like the S&P look like they've gone up. Once you divide them by the Fed balance sheet, they haven't, they've barely gone up. Gold has actually gone down, um, and real estate has gone down. Now, real estate's slightly different because you actually use leverage on it. Even ordinary people obviously use mortgages. But overall, none of these assets made you any richer. 
So if you bought a unit of S&P, you basically bought the same number of units of real estate or gold or anything else. It hadn't made a difference and it didn't make a difference versus the Fed balance sheet. So as incomes don't rise in debasement, but assets do, you actually get poorer. Now, the only thing that beats that was technology and crypto because of this added network effects or a secular a secular trend. And those outperformed it. So owning those two actually got you relatively wealthier over time, even when the central bank is de- debasing their currency. And that was a huge light bulb moment for me to think, OK, if we're going to focus on something in a secular cycle, it's these two things. Emerging markets didn't work. Nothing else worked. These are the two assets. So in which case, I'm going to concentrate my focus on these assets above and beyond all things. Uh, Jamie, thank you so much for your question. I know that we were having some uh, technical difficulties there with your microphone. We appreciate you asking it. uh, And it was a very good one. So thank you, uh, Jamie Miner. We appreciate it. Uh, Next question comes to us from Quantum Watch. Go ahead with your question for Rao Quantum Watch. I know you've been waiting for a few minutes. Yes, thank you very much. A uh, question, and if I missed it from the earlier uh, discussion in today's spaces, I, I apologize. Um, but uh, with uh, some recent activities, such as uh, Argentina uh, settling uh, some uh, IMF loans with a combination of SDRs and uh, the Chinese uh, renminbi, um, Yuan, um, and now the forthcoming um, I'll just say gold-linked uh, uh, China-Russia currency, which, which uh, potential currency, which, which is targeted at settlements uh, in Africa, and, and I say, I see it as kind of a reawakening as the old Gaddafi replacement of the CFA franc. So these these non-U.S. dollar, non-traditional. Uh, um, uh, reserve currency settlement layers, potentially, is that a potential bearish, at least marginal driver of Bitcoin use cases, which may translate into some bearish uh, 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 price movement? And, and I'm kind of dovetailing uh, on what was said earlier, uh, particularly Rao, what you said about uh, that demand rather than the uh, supply side as being a marginal driver. That's my question. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll thanks, for, th- thanks Thank for those goodness. thoughts. My thoughts on that are the world is trying desperately to move away from the US dollar. That is a very, very slow and difficult problem. The problem being is the world is 400% of GDP in debt, and most of that's in dollars. 87% of all global traders in US dollars. So only what they can do is, is at the margin, and it's at the margin for the US dollar. But, I, but that takes far too long because they can't stop using dollars because they blow up their entire own systems, the world system. So everyone's kind of caught in this trap. But what it's telling you is there is a tendency to want to use other things. And I think Bitcoin has a great space within that. And we're already seeing a lot of noise out of, you know, um, sovereign wealth funds and reserves of countries. Now, we don't know fully who's doing what yet. But I think over time, people have learned that Bitcoin itself is potentially a good reserve asset because it has no claim by anybody, much like gold. But it's easier to deal with and uh, nations can even mine for it. So I, I think it's actually accretive and not negative. I think there is a general movement that we don't want the dollar as the 
as everything because the US holds so much economic power. And there's also a lot of risk in the dollar system because of debasement, because of the excess leverage within the system. So I think overall it plays to the same narrative. And it's the same narrative um, that um, gold investors have had for a long time. And, you know, gold has worked very well over time. It's not a racy investment, but it does what it says on the tin. It kind of protects you over the long run. Um, and I think it just increases the overall narrative for the space. So I think it's a good thing. I like what you Thank did you. there, uh, Rao, with the pun on tin and gold. Uh, Rao, this has been a great conversation. I think we got some terrific questions in from the audience, as we always do. As we come to the conclusion of it, I wanted to get final thoughts, key takeaways from you on this thesis. Yeah, from me, look, all I can say is go over to realvision.com forward slash gathering. It's free. My whole piece kicks off this week. This week has a lot of great content with some people I really trust and like in the space, some great thinkers, as we try and think through what the opportunity lies in crypto. As you all know, I still think it's the largest opportunity set we've ever been given. My thesis was drawn back in 2012-13 when I drew that conclusion then, and that has remained true to this day, and I still think it remains true. So we want to keep our eye on the ball here. We don't want to miss the opportunity to generate ourselves um, some great returns. As we know, crypto comes with enormous volatility and all sorts of esoteric risks. So you have to be very careful of that and don't get over your ski tips. And for God's sake, don't use leverage. Uh, leverage is the way to a poor house in a in a 80 vol asset class. But look, it's an exciting opportunity. There's a lot being built on this space. I mean, it's incredible when you get you know, a piece of research from Bank of America, which is like 130 pages long, explaining how tokenization is going to change the world from the financial system through to ticketing. The whole world is waking up. We've got an ETF coming. Um, and not only that, a lot of ETFs coming in Bitcoin. That's going to bring fresh capital into the space just as the macro cycle is turning and the liquidity cycle is turning. So whether I'm right or wrong, makes no difference all i'm telling you is to focus and this whole week of the crypto gathering on real vision will give you everything you need to navigate this well raul you just said at the crypto gathering let's talk about it crypto markets are looking up but is this just more opium or is it really game on and if it is game on how should you position yourself Shh, don't scare it away the bull market well we're glad you asked the crypto gathering is taking over real vision from J July 10th to July 14th, obviously that's this week. Over the next five days, we'll bring in a crew of rock star analysts and builders to discuss what lies ahead for crypto. We also want to hear from you, of course. So we'll be hosting interactive sessions like, well, this, Twitter Spaces, Discord Hangouts with Miss Elaine Lee, of course, a special DGen happy hour with Elaine Lee, of course, and a bunch of other stuff. As Raoul put it, think of it as a mini Glastonbury. TLDR, it's festival season. The crypto gathering is back. With that said, I want to pass over to Nico Bruga to talk a little bit about the agenda that we've got coming up this week, Nico. Thank you, Ash. So tomorrow we are going to um, go from our zoom out, the macro crypto big picture, and actually look at what the technical and on-chain analysis is, is telling us. Ash, you will be hosting a panel tomorrow with Will Clemente, Red Capital, and Kyle DePlessis from Crypto Banter. We'll then all be getting together tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern for another Twitter Spaces. On Wednesday, we turn our attention to Web3 and NFTs. Sergio Silva will be hosting 
OSF, Mando, and EB7. And then right after that at 1 p.m. ET, we'll be in Twitter Spaces. And then Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, we are doing a special DGEN happy hour for the Asia audience, talking about everything going on in Asia. And we have Ken Yang, the head of NFT research from Delphi Digital, joining Elaine Bijan and the whole RV Collective crew. On Friday, Ash, you're back at it with the fund managers, Jeff Dorman, Chris Sullivan, and Richard Galvin. And then we'll assemble at 5 p.m. Eastern for Twitter Spaces. And then Friday, Rao and OSF sit down to give us their key takeaways, followed by a 1 p.m. Eastern Twitter Spaces. We'll then also be releasing Rao's Adventures in Crypto with Keith Grossman, which you cannot miss. It's an amazing conversation. And Elaine will close out the weeks with vibes, drinks, and good times at 2.30 p.m. Eastern on DGEN Happy Hour with our very own Gold member. Thank you, everybody. Ash, I think that was everything. Which, which by the way, can I, I, that... can I just jump in here, boys? Blockbar is listening in the conversation right now. And Blockbar, I know you're a fan of Real Vision, and I know you're in the crowd. So do come to a DGEN Happy Hour. I would love to invite you. But talking about crypto fans, Nico, I have a question for Rao, if I may. Go on. Rao, go ahead. Ash and I have, ahead, so Rao, Ash and I have been kidnapped. What would you trade off in your portfolio to get Ash and I back? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I'm not going to answer that, Elaine. Thumbs down, everybody. The soundboard is coming out. <laughs> Elaine, if it's between you and me and Eve, I, I don't know what's going to, I don't know what's going to win there in Rao's portfolio. Uh, listen, I know I said final thoughts, Ralph, but I'm sure you can't listen to all that without wanting to jump in with one final Parthian shot. Obviously, we've got a lot coming up this week. I know you and Nico have put together uh, a lot of work to engineer it. Uh, any final comments you'd like to add before we jump? No, not for now. I think I've laid out my case. I've been trying to drip feed everybody with the everything code, all the information that I can possibly give. I don't have a monopoly on the truth. I may be wrong. Um, but I'm as constructive as I've ever been over the, my time horizon. Remember, my time horizon is not this week, not this month, not this year. My time horizon goes out to 2030. Um, but I'm looking at the macro cycles and the macro cycles go out to 2025 or so. So I'm bullish over that time horizon. Perfect way to end it, Ralph. Elaine, Nico, everyone who asked questions, thank you so much. Bijan, uh, the whole crew listening uh, and all the questions, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. See you, of course, on the Crypto Gathering. Take care, everybody. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.